I'll come lick your mouth. I'll spit on your tongue. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Alien Familiar RPG Podcast. I am Clayton. I'm Jordan. I'm Elliot. I'm Daniel. And before we get started, you can find show notes and more at alienfamiliar.com. You can email us at alienfamiliarmedia at gmail.com. We are on Facebook at facebook.com slash alienfamiliar. And if you would like to help us out with supporting the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash alienfamiliarmedia, where if you enjoy our content, any help you would be able to give us would be greatly appreciated. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, today, we are talking about the topic of game balance. Um, should a tabletop role-playing game be balanced? Um, should characters be balanced? Should encounters be balanced? What does all of this mean? Should it be the goal? And um, one goal that I had, and I think I've succeeded so far in this episode, is I haven't insulted Dan yet. So good on that. <laughs> yes. Fuck you, Dan. I should point out that I never go by Dan. And so oh, you fuck, just fuck, you, did. Maybe fuck you, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> I jinxed myself. <laughs> Though I think so, Daniel's um, probably the best to, inter- I mean, like really dive into this. This is kind of your bread and butter, isn't it? Uh, it so it is and it isn't. So mostly I study... Um, complexity and emergence in game systems so it i i am an academic and so before doing this topic i did like a a micro literature survey on this just to see what was out there in the academic and industry literature and all that kind of stuff and so what i saw was interesting to me so if you look at how video game designers and tabletop rpg people look at um, encounter design, they ask completely different questions, which I think is fascinating, uh, especially since there is so much overlap, right? Like, y- you can't get a job in the video game industry without being able to tell some D&D stories. But so when video game uh, people are looking at encounter design, they're often talking about, like, AI and movement script stuff, where... Honestly, in a lot of D&D games, there's not all that much movement, not all that much like enemy decision making. So that's not a big thing. Um, and also they're always obsessed with learning and like what the players are getting out of an, uh, what the player builds themselves out of an encounter, if that makes sense. So, you know, in video games, everything's a tutorial. You are always teaching your player something so that they can overcome the next, next obstacle. Tabletop RPGs, you just kind of don't do that. You just sort of assume that they're already experts when they show up at the table and they know that they have to use fire against trolls or whatever, or you yell at them that they're metagaming, that they're using fire against (laughs) trolls. One way or another, it's not really teaching the player anything. Um, Maybe characters are supposed to be learning something. But then tabletop RPGs, you get into this big world of balance. You know, it learning gets replaced by novelty and then everything starts revolving around well are we going to have a total party kill or is this going to feel too easy and so i I think that's a really interesting difference in how we view the world so and i don't know if anyone else uh sees those sort of bright line distinctions but it balance is weird um for me i kind of hate balanced 
RPGs as far as like the enemies being balanced against you. I want there to be bad guys that could totally wipe out the party and you have to run from. And that's, I, I think, a rarity in a lot of tabletop games. See, that's an interesting perspective because that's a world... That, see, I've never been... One thing that's weird about me is I've never been much of a video game RPG player. Uh, well, I mean, let me dial that back. Solo RPGs, all about it. Skyrim, Fallout, that whole... All that stuff. Dig it. But when it comes to MMOs, uh, I, not only do I not like them, like I, I hate them. Like I have no desire to play them. I think that they're a... I just don't like them. And so, like, how the video game industry looks at some of the basic challenges that a DM has to face every day is something that's completely unknown to me. I, uh, that's I'm interested to know a little bit more about how the industry, you know, uh, of video games actually approach that topic. Because it's hard as hell as a DM. <laughs> well, the DM has... Yeah, it, the, the DM has an extra thing on their side that it video game developer does not have and the game master has the advantage of being able to adapt on the fly to whatever is happening in the game as it is being played outside of what is on the character's sheet the player character sheets everything else is up to the dm and if the dm is seeing that something is completely unbalanced then the dm can make that change without consulting anyone and without telling anyone that this change is being made the caveat comes in that the the dm then usually doesn't do that to the players um it really wouldn't be fair to suddenly tell the players oh your abilities are working a little bit differently than what what we have been playing um you might i i personally would be very irked and i have been very irked whenever i've had a um, an alleged game balance issue get corrected on me without my knowledge. It's that's weird. Every single one of my encounters are perfect. <laughs> what does game balance even mean? Can we define a term here? Like, are we talking about literal balance? Like 50-50, there's a coin toss chance that one side or the other is going to come out victorious? Like, what what are we discussing here? Well, it can't be that, since then you would have very short campaigns, you know, if you have two encounters in a night and a 75% right. chance of your party getting wiped out. So what um, does it mean then? So I think as far as enemy player balance, you're looking for a level where you get a challenging experience for the player, but not a um, insurmountable one, which again is a difference in between gate uh, in between video games and tabletop because there aren't save states in tabletop and so you know in video games you're expecting it to be harder than players can always do on the first run and that's okay that you're just going to kill them and they're going to revert to save mm -hmm. a few times um but y you just can't do that in tabletop games which i i find interesting that we aren't okay with saying Hey, I stayed at the inn. I've saved. So now let's delve into this dungeon. Oh, we all died. Back to the inn. Um, that is just something that you absolutely don't do in tabletop games. I actually have a scenario in Cartomancy where you do do that, and I have yet to see anyone actually do it. That'd be a cool magic item. 
Just like make a copy of your character sheet and set it aside. And if you die, the magic item just springs you back as you were when you saved yourself in it. That is it. <laughs> That's true. Uh, paranoia, I guess. I. Well, yeah, in Paranoia, but also in D&D, the ninth level necromancy spell clone does that. Mm-hmm. Is that what that does? So, you know, somebody needs to do a whole campaign based around that and just, you know, knock out players left and right and have them keep coming back out of the vats. See, that, uh, I had an interesting character once uh, that we ran. Recently, we ran a 20th level campaign and uh, I played a wizard. So I, I wrote in my backstory that my dude was... I mean, several hundred years old because he had the clone spell and, and he had gone through multiple lifetimes where he had died and been regenerated. And so when we started the campaign, the DM, you know, regen, you know, brought us back into his world mysteriously. And so for the first session or two, my character, from my character's perspective, was less about the what was going on in the game and more about figuring out why the hell did I respawn? You know, like, like what happened uh-huh. to me where my clone is dead? Like, how did I let this happen? You know, and it, and I don't know, as a DM, I think it was a bit of a sidebar for him. But for me as a player, it was really an interesting take on how my character saw his motivations earlier on. Because, I mean, sure, I was tied into his story and we were pursuing the story. But as a sidebar, it was really interesting to me just to figure out, like, like, how did I die? Like, how, how did I let this happen? <laughs> Which I, I think there's a whole separate topic to talk about of like a individual character's story being interesting enough that it's what the plot should be revolving around. Um, but, you know, an individual GM has trouble preparing for that. So it, I actually ran something very similar to that years ago with uh, GURPS Transhuman Space. It's a hard science setting, but it's 2100. And so you're able to like upload your mind and... Uh, cybernetics are like old school passe nobody would ever bother to walk around with robotic arms and stuff anymore um very retro you know so uh i had a character that the game starts where they've been told that they're dead and they didn't save for the last 20 years and now it's an investigation of why um and so you know that's taking that basic plot that you had but making it the central theme of the game that would be fascinating to play. Before we started the podcast, I had I had I'd asked Clayton a similar question that Jordan had, and you put it really well. Could you kind of restate or paraphrase what you had told me about the difference between a, a an asymmetric and a symmetrical game? Well, when it comes to balance, um, like like an asymmetric or a, I'm sorry, a symmetric game would be a game where both sides have the same abilities. Examples of this, the two most popular examples of this would be checkers and chess. Each player has the exact same things starting at the start of the game, and they have uh, um, the same options available to them throughout the game, and the game is just about whittling away those options for the other player. Um, Asymmetric style games are ones where each player or each side has a different set of abilities and that makes it incredibly difficult to balance then because how do you balance when you have a um for instance a very charismatic ventru who is able to dominate people and um 
and uh, basically lord over them and do just absolutely dominate a social situation. I, how do you balance that against a um, a gangrel who is just all about combat and is just about all about just making himself able to just tear everything apart with his bare hands? Those are two completely different spheres of influences that those characters are built around. And it is impossible to balance a game where you have such such extremes of characters so that everybody has a balanced time, balanced fun time. Um, I see a lot of the way that we play, like just in any game that we play, it's going to be unbalanced as to how much fun different players have at any particular time just because different characters are built for different things and different players have different preferences for different things. So I think I would actually push back against that being super hard to balance, just that from my thought process, it becomes sort of a matter of um, like a meta level of turn-taking that the GM just has to be willing to move in between those different spheres of influence and the players have to be willing to cheerlead when they're not the one in the driver's seat. And, you know, I know a lot of players that really enjoy getting to take a break and, you know, have their gangrel make fun of what's going on as uh, the charm is laid on, you know. Um, and so I actually think that the biggest problems are when everybody is trying to do basically the same thing in slightly different ways. Um but then you can like look across the table and realize that somebody else has a slightly more efficient strategy for doing it. And so I think that's the dangerous area that games like D&D are in where the game is clearly about combat. Like, you know, every all of us have done wonderful sessions that involved socializing the whole time, but nine-tenths of these books are built around ways to do harm to your fellow human beings or elves or goblins or whatever, you know? And so I think balance becomes looking across at the wizard who just blew everything up and you're suddenly jealous at the amount of damage they do or the wizard going, hey, I have to cast a fifth level spell to do the amount of damage that you're doing just by getting out of bed in the morning, you know? So I think that like apples to apples comparison is more dangerous um, in a player to player balance sort of scenario than when they're in completely different realms. Well, as a player who prefers wizards, when I look at the other players and they have that like, you know, spell envy, I just, I mean, it sucks to suck, dog. <laughs> I mean, play a spellcaster. <laughs> <laughs> But then sometimes they t- uh, you turn around to them after you've had a long day of blowing stuff up and you're like, hey, I got first level spell slots left. So you want to see some magic missiles? That's all I got. You know, yeah, that's hey. always that's always a bad sign whenever your wizard says, uh, uh, magic missile. Like, oh, shit. And and the fighters it, axe is still just as sharp as when he started. Uh, so. So, so I think that games like that where everyone is moving towards the same thing and basically it's a mathematical puzzle of who can do the most damage per round, those are where that player versus player game balance can really become challenging. But we're putting a pin on uh, kind of the reason why people are attracted to 
you know, tabletop RPGs as opposed to video games and as opposed to MMOs and things like that is that, uh, is the social element. Uh, you know, we all know that over the various versions of D&D, there were certain classes who kind of were the consensus, quote-unquote, best cat class. I, I don't know how you guys feel, but I think the wizard in the wizard in 3rd edition was kind of the consensus best player or best, uh, you know, most powerful uh, class. I think that a lot of people think the bard in 5th edition kind of takes that mantle. Do you guys ag- agree? My vote would be paladin. Uh, but... Uh, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I, there are many, many, many times whenever I've, I've, I've sat down at a table and I just, I had an idea and I just wanted to play, I mean, I just wanted to play a dumb sword swinger. I knew that my damage per round was going to be less than these other classes. I knew that, that I wasn't going to necessarily always be the most efficient because it can't be. But at the end of the day, I wanted to play the, you know, the, say a barbarian or say a, a fighter, because I had an idea and I had a, a, a personality in mind that I really wanted to, you know, see, you know, if if it if it kind of could work. And so, um, I mean, balance. If, if an RPG was perfectly balanced between classes or between GM and 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 uh, the party, you know, why aren't we playing video games at that point? But yeah, we tried that. Well, we didn't try it, but they tried that with fourth edition. And for my money, it was the worst version of D and D I ever played. But goddamn, it was balanced as fuck. It was so balanced, I didn't know which class I was playing. They're all just kind of reskins of the same general mechanics. And boy, they are. I, I will have exactly the same number of encounter powers as the next guy, for sure. It'll be probably the same die type so sweet glad i showed up are there any other games that come to mind for other players or other players you guys uh that maybe attacks the balance uh, idea a little bit better are there any games that like my mind world of darkness playing as a human like i've ran a couple of those games where it's like a zombie apocalypse you know everybody's a human everybody has the same amount of starting you know, points, and essentially everybody's the same, more or less. Uh, you know, what have your guys' experiences been playing in those kind of uh, other systems? I would say that um, systems that are based around point by or anything that's not a class base, but just you select your abilities from a large pool, um, I think those are harder to balance than um, because you're. It's going to be so much easier to um if you know the system to eke all of your points out of it into the things that you're going to be using whereas a basically a novice player can spread their points around and not really be able to do much of anything Um, whereas if you've got like a class-based system you are going to have an idea of well the player is going to have an idea of the archetype that they are fulfilling and they can usually make decisions based on that archetype that at least will make their character more competitive and by more competitive i mean they'll be more on par for power with the player who knows basically all of the ins and outs of the system so i would absolutely second that that point by systems 
um, can go wildly off the rails. And part of that is because, so I, I feel like a lot of systems, um, the most fun strategic decisions and the most interesting strategic decisions aren't in play. They're in creation. Um, and so character creation in a game like GURPS, um, you know, you might end up with 20 different rule books involved and all these different weird, crunchy rules bouncing off of each other. Um, and, and so it's very easy to just stick a couple of powers together that have unexpected effects and get crazy. Or when I did that transhuman space game, I actually, I had everybody come up with a character concept and then I designed their characters in the rules for them in part because we didn't play a lot of GURPS and so people didn't really know the system all that well. And partly it was so easy with the number of points that I wanted to be able to give them so that they could be these really cool characters with all these crazy uh, far future abilities. It would be very simple to max out all of your uh, stats and skills for anything that you wanted to do. And basically you would have to botch to ever fail anything, you know? So I, it, point by systems, there always has to be a rational uh, finger on the scale from the GM to bring it under control, which, again, is something that you can do with tabletop games. I'm thinking about some of the old school role playing games that did not give a fuck about balance. Um, so prior to the last, you know, fifth edition um i I think this is still going on fourth everybody would roll their fucking attributes Mm -hmm. you know you you get a guy with 18 strength on your team you'd have a guy with three strength on your team just as likely and you're kind of an asshole if you didn't play the shitty guy that you rolled um but that was like on even a, a more sane and controlled end of the spectrum when you compare that to stuff like traveler where you don't even get to pick what your classes are it's just totally random you can kind of try for stuff but like you're making skill rolls to even keep the career that you have or to go into something else and then if you look at stuff like uh chaosium and stormbringer you don't pick a class you roll on a table and you might be a beggar missing both legs <laughs> Or you might be a sea captain with a galley to start with or anything in between. You might be a powerful sorcerer or you might just be some mercenary guy. And it's really, really hard to do anything. It's hard to learn spells in in that world because it's considered to be like, you know, something you grew up doing. So if you didn't get that lucky magic role, like you're kind of fucked. And I'm I'm thinking back about the experiences that I've had in systems like that. And you always have like the funny hard luck story that somebody has, but everybody else that, you know, got somewhere, you know, in the, you know, roughly middle of the bell curve with just weird things about their characters usually has a blast and it's decisions that you wouldn't normally make that the randomness makes for you. So I don't know. I I feel like balance might be kind of overhyped. Yes and no. 
So, so that old school mentality that you're talking about, I feel like is most exemplified by the, uh, second edition and earlier D and D paladin that you had to have a 17 charisma and like four other stats had to have a minimum score that statistically you're just very unlikely to ever get, especially if you're taking dice rolls just as they lay and not able to move things around. Right. And so that's very constraining on the vision of the game. And so it can be fun to be like, oh, for once in my lifetime, I have gotten the stats that would allow me to play a paladin. So I kind of have to, even though, you know, I kind of rather be playing a jerky thief tonight. But, you know, the dice said I've got to. Um, and so I, I, in general, like our brave new world of... Um, systems that put the choices in your hands. I think that the place for variance and for luck is in individual encounter, not in the creation of a character where this, you know, if you, if you're a long running campaign person, which I generally am not, but if you are, then, you know, one bad die roll is going to hang over your head for the next five years of uh, campaign play. That's nuts. You know, uh, that is nothing compared to, oh, I rolled a one fighting the dragon, you know? Uh, and so I think that's too much power to give dice. Well, let's face it. That character will probably die in in those systems. <laughs> but on the other hand, and this is, you know, since 5th edition started, I have preferred to play in games and to run games using point by for the very reason we're discussing that it, it gives more power to the player Yes, you're going to have a bad stat, but it's up to you. But going back to my childhood and going back to memories of Stormbringer and and Chaosium systems, and uh, I'm just thinking about people who maybe, you know, they're new to the game or they have a hard time getting that uh, creative juice going. You know, I always, you know, looking back on it, I really pitied uh, the player who, when we customarily I mean, it wasn't until fifth edition until we till i typically use point by most of the time those are rolls and there was always that one player at the table who rolled really high cheater who had great stats across the board almost invariably they were the most vanilla shitty characters shitty players that i ever played with whenever when you ha- when you're good at a lot of things or the most important things or everything those players are those games are so uninteresting, and those players are so uninteresting. Uh, you know, when I've rolled well on the roll system, it's just kind of like it's it's boring. Whenever you have to negotiate around something you're bad at, you know, that's when the social element becomes fun because you avoid situations, you know, that you're bad at. But if you're good at a lot of things, then yeah, you know, that's boring. Man, I remember making some lucky-ass character creation rolls a few times and getting a character that was, like, really solid. Maybe it wasn't the thing that I was planning on, you know, hoping I would get when I sat down, but, like, I was playing with a pretty fucking heroic set of stats here. And let me tell you, it changed the way that I played the game. Like, I was much more careful with that guy and, like, really invested in keeping this thing alive because who knows you know what kind of paraplegic i'm gonna roll up next time it's 
I don't know. I felt like I was much more invested than in current stuff where I can like build the exact same thing that I just, you know, ran into a telephone pole and spawn with, you know, exactly the same numbers. So have any of you done Dungeon Crawl Classics at all? No. What is that? It's so it's a old school role playing system, OSR. Um uh and so it's very much emulating um the olden days of uh first edition or you know any of the old box dnds you know it, it even has the same art uh, artists that worked on the fiend folio and all that nice. kind of stuff right awesome. um so it uses what they refer to as a funnel system for character creation um you actually make five-ish characters when you start and your starting dungeon is a total meat grinder um your characters are completely randomly rolled they are all zeroth level peasants or cobblers or whatever um it just like you were mentioning with stormbringer there's tables except nothing on that table is you are a sea captain that starts with your own galley it's all yes i got a pitchfork hooray and then you're flung at this initial challenge where it's just expected that the vast majority of these characters are going to die and those few that make it out get to be first level. Um, and so that can make those individual characters very precious. And at the same time, um, it, it levels off some of that randomness because the worst ones die really fast. And so hopefully you end up with a fairly decent character at the end that you are invested in, even though they've got, you know, constitution of four. Gotcha. So I do highly recommend uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics. It's a lot of fun. That sounds like it'd be up my alley. You know, you know, I keep going back to the social element. Um, you know, me personally, as a young person playing games, I uh, it's funny how we tribe up, and I would always make fun of, and still kind of don't understand the LARP crowd. Uh, you know, getting dressed up and 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 you know, wielding fake weapons, using a completely different rule set that has no dice. That was so alien to me, but it's kind of a little more 21st century. I think that would be, I mean, I don't know how you guys feel, but that's that, that whole idea. Damn it. That whole idea seems to be kind of more catching on. But like that being said, you know, that's what draws us to the table is whether we're dressed up or in plain clothes. When we get to the table, you know, whatever's on the, on the sheet is fine, but like I, I point to uh, Winston uh, Jordan's character in my Ravenloft game, uh, he has an eight nine intelligence, right? Yeah. Yet still, he he is the. I mean, other. I mean, I, I, maybe Clayton's character Wade might be a face at times, but more or less the face in the party is is often Winston. You know, Jordan's a very experienced player. We've got some new players, some timid players. It has kind of fallen on to Jordan as a player to push the story forward. And yet he's the least equipped. But as the DM, you know, I would never have known that he had an, a non-intelligence until I looked it up and you told me. And, you know, mm-hmm. he, you know, that's part of what attracts us to the table is that, uh, yeah, balance is fine, but... Uh, there's always going to be that human element of the player himself or herself who uh, 
shines through. And uh, it just it, there's always going to be that there's and in, 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 in sometimes that's actually kind of good because with Jordan having a low intelligence, there have been times whenever he's being the face because the other players kind of force him to be. He's put in a position where he has to use his intelligence to get them to the next plot point, and you haven't done very good. And it's led to mm-hmm. fun, you know, fun, you know, diatribes in the game. And, uh, that, but that's just part of the game. I think that a, you know, in a role playing game, in a tabletop RPG, I think that if your, if your idea is the premise is for it to be well balanced, I don't know that that's a great starting point for a tabletop RPG. I think that you're kind of, I think you're kind of undermining the whole point from the very beginning. So your argument is that the humans are unbalanced, so therefore the game is always going to be unbalanced, and so it, it's a fool's journey to try to balance yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, pretty much. that, uh, And I don't know how you could spin that, you know, when if say, where I, say I were a game designer, I would not, I would not try to start from the point of view that I want all of my players to be equally powerful, you know, in their own spheres. I, I don't want, I wouldn't start from thinking like, I don't want any, pl- any character to not have the ability to be marginalized because I mean, the stats themselves, the roles themselves, the classes are going to marginalize, you know, y- you no matter what, but even still, there's no way for a game designer to predict the social, the human dynamic at a table full of actual people. Um, it's so much easier to control whenever you have NPCs and they're computerized and they're bots. But whenever you get a bunch of people together, you know, the more experienced players, the 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 more charismatic people, they're going to shine through regardless of what their stats are. And I, I think that's something to keep in mind whenever you're choosing the game you want to play, you know, the game you want to play, the game you want to make, the game you want to create. Uh, there's just no accounting for the human element and and I don't know how you would customize a game for that. You know what I mean? But you you can't discount it. Elliot, you're uh, you're getting into some unpopular, controversial thought space right now. I hope none of our listeners oh, want to start a Twitter oh, mob please. or something. Please mob me. I've never been mobbed before. I would love that. You're about to get doxxed, bro. Let me go on a different angle with that, though. Uh, what if... Okay, so the sports psychology people would say that the characters being balanced is what allows you as a human to achieve in the game, right? So we we wouldn't have a lot of fun watching soccer or whatever if it was a dramatically asymmetric game and one person, uh, one side got 10 players and the other got four. Um, It's interesting and we can be proud at, of one side for achieving because they are equal by the game's rules, right? And so I'm sure that uh, every uh, that any longtime RPG player has had a session where they're like, "Ah, oh, man, I kicked ass at that." You know, I made the right strategic decision. I cast the right spell at the right moment. I used that potion to the best of its ability. And and you're not thinking. My character did, but you, as a human, oh, fuck made it. the right call. Yeah, and and the characters being balanced, I think, is part of what lets you do that. 
But at the same time, there's another countervailing pressure that you need to tamp that down with randomness um, or asymmetry that lets people who aren't so good still feel successful at moments that, you know. Agreed. A hundred percent. Even if you're new, you can roll a 20. Uh, even if you're new, you can have the social character when everyone else doesn't have a social character and you'll be successful in social situations. So that's that's my balanced thought. You know, a conversation that I have, something that would really, like, I think, put a pin in your point uh, is a conversation I'm having right now with a player that uh, I'm going to introduce into my game after a certain milestone. And, you know we had a long conversation about the bar, uh, the, about his character because, you know, he, this particular player wants to play a barbarian and the barbarian that he sent me, his character sheet was really low in social charisma intelligence. Wait, aren't you playing Ravenloft at the moment? Yeah. Okay. So this isn't going to be a barbarian wandering around like when everyone else has like cravats. Right. So I have a, so you know, I'm because I have a group of really good players. Uh, you know, most people play Ravenloft through level 13, 12, 14, whatever. Uh, these guys are going to kill it at level 10. So I, the way that I'm pacing my game is I'm like halfway through. Uh, I have a friend. Okay, sorry, I didn't mean to distract. <laughs> no, it's fine. And, and like, but that, that actually gets my point is that I'm introducing a 10th level character and he's mainly a martial character. And so he and I had a conversation and it was clear to me that the way that he saw his character was that basically he was going to be good at the combat stuff, which would be systematic, turn-based, you know, crunchy. But then he had an opinion that like when it got to social stuff, it should be up to his personal ability and that like, so what I'm, so what I told him was like, you know, here's the thing. And we have some new players, we have some experienced players, but like you have an eight intelligence for a reason. Like you're not going to, you know, you have a low, in, low charisma for a reason. And so you can't just talk your way out of a situation because you are a charismatic individual. Not that he is, but you know what I'm saying? <laughs> a lot of players tend to dump bad stats in their socials. Because they kind of rely on the idea that, well, me as a player, I can talk my way through it and not get penalized for having bad socials. And as a DM, I feel like that robs a lot from the fellow players who chooses to put high stats in charisma, high stats in intelligence. You know, I think as a DM, you have to take that into account that, you know, if you have like kind of Jordan's in the position now where he happens to be, you know, the player that the that the other party members kind of forced to be the face, you know, that's one thing. But there is a fine line between playing a role your character's not made for because the other players kind of need you to be. And, golly, sorry. Um, and then basically kind of metagaming it, that you know you can talk yourself out of situations. Me as a DM, I'm thinking, like, I'm going to, I'm going to make you roll for that. Like, just so you know, like you're, I don't care how eloquently you as a player present this, you know, argument to me or present this persuasion role to me. I'm going to make you roll because your character is a, an idiot. Yeah. 
Like ne- that goes back to that Toriador versus Gangrel kind of game that Clayton started out talking about. It's it's really unfair to the player that put a bunch of points in social manipulation stuff. You know, I could just as easily sit here and tear, tell you exactly how I pull someone's throat out, and you know, well, I I just described it. Why can't I do it? Well, we've got a mathematical model that you've got to work your way through in order to make that be the uh, consensus canon of this imaginary world. So, sorry, um, that's what mechanics are for. Though I would caution, though, if you're a player and you put high charisma in your stat block, you better be prepared to actually have a high charisma, to step forward and speak for your party. Because if there's nothing more annoying than a player who has a high charisma, a high intelligence, and then lets the dummy fighter decide what happens. Mm -hmm. Because it doesn't make any sense. So, Elliot, your story makes me sad. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, and I think think it gets back to our core theme of balance in... I kind of want to ask the question of what we should be balancing. Since I think we've kind of come to the consensus that actually balancing the ability of every character to succeed at a task is challenging, if not foolish. Um, but I would propose that really what RPG designers should be focused on balancing is how interesting a character is. And to me, a barbarian in a highly social game is interesting because they're bad at it. You know, that, that's the glorious part. You know, I've definitely enjoyed having, um, uh, crab players in Legend of the Five Rings where everyone else is obsessing over minor pieces of court etiquette and they come tromping in with their boots onto the Imperial Palace, right? Um, since that's interesting, right? It, it, that low stat is more interesting than other people's high stats. Um, and so I, absolutely high low stats are far more interesting than high stats by far. Yeah. So, so for me, I think that what needs balanced, what desperately needs balanced for a game to be successful is that all characters can have those interesting hooks that pull them into the play. And honestly, like, so I have run games, um, where the power levels are dramatically different. Uh, like I've done a Star Wars game that had a Jedi Master and a Padawan. And obviously one of them has like five times as much power as the other one, but they can come up with a interesting dynamic and it was fun. I did a Star Wars game where, um, one player was actually playing all of the clone troopers supporting, um, a couple of Jedi. And so they could hop in between all of these different uh, clone fighter pilots and, um, you know, clone squad leaders and whatever and send a zillion of them to get blown up. That was interesting. It was fun. Uh, yeah, sure, the Jedi Master can do a zillion things that the stormtroopers can't. But, you know, he can't send a squad to die uh, uh, at his whim, you know? Um, so... I just want all classes to have something interesting. And again, like getting back to, uh, I think it was Jordan's point earlier, uh, 
that's why fourth edition was so lame is that it was completely balanced everybody versus each other their ability to do damage on a round it was not at all balanced in how interesting things were because nothing was interesting rant complete absolutely i mean jordan not to continue to focus on that game but like you know jordan's not you know winston his character name isn't the face because you know his character's good at it you know he's in that position basically because the other players kind of put him there so jordan maybe you could speak to this point a little bit more do you feel punished at all because you have a low stat in you know one of the you know intelligence charisma areas do you feel punished because of that or do you feel like you've still managed to make your way in this particular game, you know, with that low stat. My biggest challenge has been playing a stupid person faithfully. Oh, God, that could be... We could do a whole podcast that's, on that. That's one of the most arrogant things I've said probably today, but it's it's true, though. Like, when you're in that sub-average level of intelligence, I don't want to get on this rabbit trail, and we could totally have a different thing about that later, but... That's been the hardest part of that um, for me. And Well, I mean, you know, if you have a 9 or an 8 in a stat, according to D&D, you're below average. Right. Well, I mean, you know, the whole the definition of average is that most likely people are going to be average. So when you're when you're when you have a, a character who on paper is below average in an, in a something and you can't relate to that, that's something that I have still yet to see a, a system compensate for you know it, for years i've questioned whether mental stats should be represented in rpgs should there be a intelligence wisdom that's charisma a, a good stat? point they probably shouldn't even they probably shouldn't even exist there are differences and they they do have real world ramifications and when you're talking about things like you know, how many skill points or something a character should have to be allocated, you know, that's, that is a function of this person's brain and whatever, you know, other, uh, environmental effects or whatever might have happened to that person. There is something there that is quantifiable. I mean, we do it all the time. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very vague and hard to, hard to deal with. It's slippery. I, I want to I want to bring one thing up that we haven't talked about here. Um, we've talked a lot about like uh, character balance, like inter-party balance, and we've talked about like balance from a game design perspective, but we haven't talked about encounter balance design, like as a DM in a session, much at all. I, I really thought that's where we were going to start off with, like from the jump, but we went straight into like you know design philosophy stuff, but like. I want to throw in my two bits here on what I think about this. And, you know, I'm sure everybody else has got lots of things to say, but I think that as a session progresses, encounters should become more and more difficult because that is the very definition of rising action in drama. And if that's not there, it's going to be boring. And that's not to say that every encounter should be a linear increase from the previous one or that it should always necessarily trend increasing because I think there's a lot to be said for like we discussed last time Daniel the uh 
the variable schedule reward thing, mm-hmm. um, you know, combat difficulty is one of those sorts of dopamine gears you can play with. Um, but yeah, if the final battle is not more difficult than like the first one, you fucked up. And I think that's, and it's entirely fluid, right? And it's entirely fluid as to what is going to make one encounter more difficult than another encounter. Like an, an encounter that is in using D and D parlance, like several levels above you, you can blow through that if it's your first encounter of the night. But then if you have another encounter that's maybe designed for what your characters are supposed to be able to take, if they just got off of that really hard encounter, they've blown through their resources and they're they're in real danger in that encounter that otherwise would be considered a um, a moderate challenge because they don't have the resources at their disposal anymore because they blew all that in the in the so-called hard encounter which ended up in the players minds probably being a little bit easy because they they got through it without getting too scathed so let me follow up that one with it so i have a lot of thoughts about this but just micro scale so i have kind of a patented how to stress out uh player characters and players uh system i i love going medium light hard and so when i want a like big picture conflict that they're going to remember. Uh, I throw in a medium size conflict to begin with something that challenges them enough that uh, they're having to actually burn some spell slots, you know, maybe not the good stuff, but they're definitely engaged. They're fully in this thing. Uh, then I love throwing uh, something light in something that they would blow through normally, but because they're still dealing with the first thing, so, you know, throw some skeletons behind the party where suddenly the wizard panics that he's surrounded, even though, you know, normally they would be able to blast through him in a second. And then after they've worked through that and everybody has used up a couple of potions, throw in the hard thing. I guarantee you that you can uh, seriously stress out a party far more than just starting off with the, you know, vampire or whatever. Um, but... Generally, on all of this, like, rising difficulty curve stuff, I kind of hate it. I, I I feel like it totally breaks the world to have, like, oh, as you continue going and you level up, uh, the whole world gets tougher. It, it, it annoys the crap out of me. Um, it makes the whole world feel like you're playing Dragon Warrior on the NES where, you know. Yeah, or Skyrim. Yeah, it, or Oblivion. Oblivion was bad. Yeah, it's that. just like okay, why like why outside of my why home? Wolves so hard to kill. Yeah, why outside of my hometown is it all green slimes? And then you know the the city on uh, the next continent over is surrounded by lich kings. Good lord, you know, like <laughs> it, how do farmers go out <laughs> go out during the day? Because you know it's all twentieth level encounters or whatever. I I I, I detest. Um, the the rising difficulty curve of a world like that, which it is a natural symptom of D and D levels, which is one of the reasons I don't like levels. Yeah, you know, and like I, I've I've struggled with this personally as a DM, especially playing a lot of Fifth Edition. That uh, you know, you, like you said, it's it's really at the at its core, it's a combat game. So you want to have combat be 
an integral part of the game. But at the same time, you know, uh, there's no way you should, you know, if you TPK your party off a random encounter, you're probably not doing it right. Um, what I, the way, it reminds me recently of uh, a combat that I ran. It was a throwaway encounter that I made, but I wanted to create a, a I wanted to create a very lethal uh, encounter that the players that, in my mind, the players would be able to get over, but it would really just kind of show that we're at the point in the game when like I'm going to kill you like if I can I'm going to kill you because earlier on in the game when you're developing the story whenever you're developing the players you know in my mind you want to you want the players to care about their characters if you kill a character off at level two level three if you have players dying off here and there as the levels go on then they're not going to be able to really you know adhese to the character, but as you crescendo to the top, I feel like it's important that, you know, in this particular instance, I, I made an encounter just before they went into Castle Ravenloft that was really lethal, and I felt like, and maybe since, you know, Clayton and Jordan are playing in the game, you can speak to this a little bit, but something that was different was that tactically, I made a change as a DM. Typically, I'm not the person that takes advantage of the player who's down, mm-hmm. But I wanted to show the players that, you know, from this point forward, if you give me the opportunity to kill you, I'm going to kill you. Because I think that rises the tension. And it changes. And what I noticed was that when, so the situation was that one of the players, it was Jordan's character, was, you know, he was dropped below zero hit points. And there was still a lethal combatant adjacent to him. Um, So the, you know, the NPC looked around and he had nothing better to do than to just stab the down player. And so, you know, in, in D and D you give that player automatic death saves and that put Jordan, instead of having three death saves, which is very generous, um, he had one. And if, if I'm not mistaken, that happened twice. Another player was down and I stabbed them too. I think that set the tone for the players going into the final boss battle, that things have changed. That now that you're at the crescendo, um, you know, I'm not playing for you. I'm playing for you. You have to win this. You know what I mean? And I think that that creates, when you play in a way uh, against your players, you really put them in a position where they understand that, uh, yeah, I could die. And ultimately, in a RPG tabletop game, you kind of assume the DMD, the DM is in your pocket and they don't want you to die and they want the game to continue. But at a certain point, when it gets to the pinnacle, every player needs to understand they could die and that, that, you know what I mean? And that creates a necessary tension that I think thematically the game needs. Yeah, I just want to throw in that, like, the player characters who are the hardest to make a balanced encounter for are the ones who have never lost a fight. Because they have, they're both cocky and they've gone through everything. They've, they've faced down everything that they've encountered so far. It may cost a lot, but they've gotten through it. I feel like that if you can impart a, a level of fear in the player characters that there are some situations where we meet, where we need to be more than just hammers, like pounding away at whatever this uh the hit points of this uh, problem is um if you can if you can get the player characters to recognize that 
not every single encounter is going to be this this victory on their part. I'm sorry, I got really distracted by that buzzing. Um, uh, I think I've lost my point. Oh, sorry. Well, I mean, I think your point was that if if players lose the sense that they can be defeated, then that not only derails the game for the player, it also kind of can sometimes take the wind out of you as a DM. The the encounters don't really need to be balanced as long as the as long as the characters suffer in some way. They they expend some sort of resource, and they and it's something that they feel. Like, um, Daniel, your example of like having the, um, the skeletons attack the rear of the, um, of the group when they least expect it. I'm sure that that, um, whether or not that encounter was actually a difficult encounter or a balanced encounter, I guarantee that that wizard who was at the back of the party remembers that encounter because they got swarmed and it doesn't matter how balanced the encounter actually was. Those players are thinking, wow, that was an amazing combat. That was an amazing encounter. Um, I can't believe we got through it. So it, yeah. Um, let me, let me kind of complexify your point a little bit that, so I want players in a game to always have to run like a, a, operational level decision process when a conflict is starting since you know the the tactical decisions on the ground of like where everyone's moving around like like i've said i feel like are pretty simple in a lot of rpgs but i want them to have to make the call in every combat is this a fight i should be in uh is this something i should run away is this something i need to like have a radically different strategy where i need to uh, blow the dam and flood this place instead of actually try and fight this thing. Um, and I think that that is something that D and D specifically kind of encourages you against that. It really mm-hmm. is a world of power fantasy where your character is always supposed to be successful. You know, that they give you a table to say, this is the right level of care of, uh, enemy for you to be sending after them. You know, nowhere in there are you supposed to be sending a adult red dragon after fourth level characters. And I think that that's valuable to, to put some of those encounters in where they have to go, you know what? This isn't fighting wolves outside the town anymore. We need to get out of here, guys. Let's see if we can make a deal with a dragon so he doesn't eat us. Um, Hard agree. And so for me, that makes a much more interesting world and gets out of that, um, you know, again, that dragon warrior, you start with green slimes outside the town sort of world. Now, do I want to run a game that's 90% my characters running away from things? N- no. Um, but I feel like, especially in a level-based game where they're getting bigger, you have to give them things that they can't handle. Um, it's kind of, uh, Mega Man X has a famous beginning where you get into a boss fight that you totally cannot win until you get bailed out by somebody and have to be like, oh, wow, I want to get all those cool powers like that dude has, right? Um, and I think that you need some insurmountable hurdles to 
give you something that you're working towards instead of this slow grind up that is common in a lot of uh, level-based RPGs. I want to say about um, the idea of retreating in the face of, you know, uh, an overwhelming adversary in D&D. Um, I, I don't know if this is what you mean when you say emergence in game design, Daniel, but it seems that there is a property that does emerge out of the turn structure and how the timing of rounds works in D&D that makes a full party retreat basically impossible. I've tried to orchestrate it on several occasions. I think once in your game, Elliot, it was effective in those caves. But, like, you were talking about, you know, uh, silly Final Fantasy NES kind of uh, uh, role-playing games. Well, all of those have, like, a full party retreat button. And there is no like group action like that in D and D. And so that implicitly encourages everybody to get just one more hit in. Well, if everybody spends the whole round getting just one more hit in, that's a whole nother round that you're still fighting the thing. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Which again is one of those uh, assumptions that's baked into the system. And it's why everyone plays D and D the way that they do. Yeah. You know, it's not like um, people just aren't creative that they play, combat games of um steadily increasing difficulty of monster it's baked into the rule system it's very difficult to buck against where in a game like cyberpunk 2020 say um you still have the the turn system but there's a lot of options like okay i'm gonna throw a smoke can and a couple of frag grenades and let's get ourselves out of here mm-hmm that give you better options for breaking contact that Dungeons and Dragons just doesn't have. Um, yeah. You know, I kind of want to push back a little bit about a couple of things. Uh, and, and part of it is the, the essential difference between the different systems you choose to play in. Um, I love cyberpunk. Like I, I literally maxed out my, uh, copies. <laughs> like when I was in college, you, you, they would only give you so many copies to print off at any computer in the in the college. Well, my sophomore year, I think I really wanted. I downloaded the uh, old Cyberpunk rules, so I I printed them all off and I maxed out my copies for the whole <laughs> year because I print I printed off every single book that I could, and I, I love that system and it is very lethal. But I guess in a game that's very lethal, your character is worth very little. And I think that the crescendo of knowing that your early encounters are going to be uh, surmountable, but that you're ultimately building towards a very lethal, very dangerous situation. You know, I think oftentimes when we get so concerned with the, the rules and the mechanics, we forget that what, what brings players to an RPG is that they are looking to a DM to create a narrative. And they are looking to, uh, they're looking for something more than just your average, you know, I can die a thousand times over again, respawn, and then just go back to my last save and then redo it. Um, they're looking for a story. And, you know, I think that it's okay for a DM and a group of players to expect that, you know, maybe in the early days, they're, 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 they're wandering the, you know, the, oh, what's the, Oh, what's the word? The uh, 
they're on the they're on the adventurous path. The hero's they're, journey. They're yeah, they're on the hero's journey. You know, you know, Luke Skywalker did not die in Mos Eisley. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't worried about Luke Skywalker when he was, you know, getting accosted by the random dude that, you know, Obi Wan cut his mm-hmm. arm off. But the first time I watched Star Wars, I was really worried about Luke when Darth Vader was on his tail in the in the trenches. And so, like, I think that that's, you know, every game system is trying to tell a different kind of story. And the one thing that D&D is trying to do, I think, in my opinion, is that it's it's trying to walk that hero's path. And if a DM, if a DM fails to create a story or they don't, they don't, you know, like in my case where I'm running Ravenloft, uh, if they if you don't play it that way, then it loses an element. But it is very, but it is very important that there needs to be a turn, a shift, to where you know uh, I'm not saving you anymore. Like this is the narrative moment that you've been building towards, and if you die, you die. And and I think that's okay. Uh, I think that it, you know, I think the narrative is more important in a tabletop RPG than uh, than the rules. Dude, I gotta push back hard on this. I've I've been in games and I've run games where either a significant player character's death or a total party kill has just completely derailed the whole thing. Like if, if you've got a a couple of characters that are kind of holding the thing together and you know, all the hooks have to do with, you know, their stories and all this stuff and everybody gets wiped out, your game's dead. You don't start off with a bunch of new characters where you left off and somehow, you know, it's all the same. Like, it, it's all over. All the, you know, all the skin you had in the game is now bloody and smeared on the floor. Um, I, but that's the problem with those highly lethal games, kind of like the one you made, like Apocalyptia. <laughs> kind of like if you, if you create a game that doesn't give the GM any sort of lean way that it's highly lethal in its construction and 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 every player could die at the at the at the wrong roll of the dice then it it really robs the dm from the opportunity to be like you know this is an important character i want if i if that player dies it's because i wanted them to and i know that that sucks if you're the player but you know some DMs don't want to kill players. I'm not one. You just them. said in like uh, this D and D example, you're you're talking about like a sanctity of a total party kill in, in these like quasi poetic kind of ways, um, as as if there's something great in the narrative to be had. And believe me, I understand. The, the fear of death, the excitement, all that stuff. That's why I made such a lethal fucking game as Apocalyptia, because I'd fucking live on that. That's, that's the adrenaline high. But, uh, I don't think there's as much good shit to be had narratively as what you're kind of making it out to be, because I've seen it end in just disappointment, bitterness, bad feelings between players. And just overall, you know, as tragic as something as trivial as a tabletop role-playing game can be, that's how I've seen this kind of shit work out. So, I don't know. I don't I don't think it's quite as romantic as you're making it out to be, is all I'm saying. Well, I mean, it depends on the intention of the Dungeon Master. 
you know, I can only speak for myself, but, you know, the way that I kind of contrive it in my mind as a DM is that there are certain, like, as you guys went through Ravenloft, in my mind, there were certain pockets of the narrative that were lethal. Um, and so, like, for instance, uh, when you guys went to Berez and you confronted Baba La Saga, all bets were off. If if somebody died, they died. You know, uh, if you guys made some bad choices at Argenvost, same thing. You guys didn't, so it was very boring. But, like, you know, I've played that game where, like, I died on the road to the random encounter. Like, I, I, I you know, I put hours into my backstory. You know, I've put... You know, I've played this game, you know, to level four. I'm very attached to this character. And yet, because the DM rolled a random encounter, I died. Now, don't get me wrong. If if a player does something very stupid, you know, they deserve to die. No matter what the circumstance. But if the players are doing their level best, you know, should they not die in the heroic moment? And so that's kind of how I conceive. And that's why I kind of warned you guys at the beginning when we went into Castle Ravenloft, the very first thing that I did when we went into Castle Ravenloft, I was like, I made sure everybody knew that, you know, you got, you, you can die here. Not only can you die here, but I'm trying to kill you. Like, I think that was another level, like not to get too in the weeds about my my personal game, but you know, uh, you know, you guys entered Castle Ravenloft in a very novel location that I built into the game that isn't, isn't written into the game. And so when you guys, you know, you guys immediately went up the tower, you had a really great encounter, you were all very weak, and so you guys retreated and tried to find, you know, you basically you guys tried to go back to the place that you came from so that you can, you know, teleport to a safe place and recover. Nah, fuck that. No, you're in Castle Ravenloft now. So I burnt that shit down. But that's because, like, this is the crescendo of the game. And so you guys needed to know that, you know, it's dangerous and you need to be willing to die. But at the same time, you know, you know, if there's no sense of lethality, then what are we playing for? But at the same time, you know, if I kill you with a goblin on the road, I'm probably not coming back next week. <laughs> you know well, what I mean? Me, let me tell you, we're, we're not going to die in Ravenloft in some really cool scene with like Strahd doing some crazy shit. It's going to be some random fucking animated halberd or some random no-name vampire spawn that just gets a lucky crit in and drops somebody. Oh, cool. All right, that's how that went. I'm just telling you, the game is too random to have those cool scenes, those decisive scenes, even if it's shit like, you know, you know, Walking Dead would kill protagonists all the time. And it was like shocking. It was engaging in the way that it happened, but it would pretty much always happen in some way that was like interesting. It would rarely be just like a random thing. Um, D and D is going to be random shit. And so I'm just saying, don't get your hopes up for how something like that's going to shake out. Um, as someone who's run many very lethal games and seen trivial player character death happen over and over again. Uh, I think it leaves a bad taste in everybody's mouth. And I also want to, to say that there's a whole realm of consequences to failure that 
games as simple as D&D don't even let us consider um, things like, uh, okay, in, um, in Game of Thrones, Jamie Lannister gets his arm chopped off. Spoiler alert. Um, that is a failure. Jamie Lannister didn't die. That wasn't the end of that interesting character. Some terrible thing happened to him that then changes his character dramatically and then works into some other shit. That kind of thing, or like, you know, someone that this person loves gets killed or some other terrible shit happens. Like, there's a bunch of consequences that should be in the, in the palette beyond just binary, you know, die or survive because that, that just chops off so much. You know what I mean? But I also think that's probably getting to a much wider sort of discussion than we can really address here since, you know, getting into stakes sure. and the ideas of why we fight um, is probably uh, beyond our text at the moment. Indeed. I would say that, like, for any encounter, if it if it looks like it's not going to be balanced and particularly the player characters see that shit is shit is beyond them they need to have a reasonable way out jordan you had the point earlier that dnd really doesn't have good rules for withdrawing the group if if things start to go bad and like i feel like it should be a possibility that the player characters have a way of withdrawing except in the possibly the final battle they should have a way of getting out if things go horribly south. You know, and, and, and not to make this a D&D podcast, I know that that's where I come from. I really want to play more games <laughs> so that I don't constantly reference D&D. But, you know, Clayton, we've talked about this. Uh, once you get to 10th level in D&D 5e, all bets are off. Uh, you know, I don't worry about balancing anymore. I vaguely look at challenge ratings. Uh, I kind of look at how many bad guys I'm throwing at you guys at any given time. But if you follow the D&D Dungeon Master Guide, you know, guidelines, you know, it's a mixed bag. So since you guys hit level 9, I've just been throwing shit at you. And I think that it's worked out okay, but uh, when you when you come to a leveled game, uh, it's really difficult to, 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 to really, you know anticipate how well the players are going to you know deal with an, a particular encounter yeah and like in okay in our encounter with that rock um that giant bird that um literally me and jordan and um uh, the other player i don't want to say this name on a podcast because he hasn't has it been on um we decided to flee from that fight and um because that encounter was beyond us at the time. We were going to get our asses handed to us. We, if we wanted our characters to survive, that, that was what we needed to do. And we recognized that. And so like those characters, I want to make a tactical retreat from this, from this conversation and head on into geek things because we're starting to run a bit long. <laughs> well played. I knew I'd get that segue in eventually. That was well done. All right, so um, let's go go on to geek things. Um, uh, Daniel, do you want to go first? Uh, sure, I can. So I, I think I'll be kind of generic and just say playing old games. Like I'm, 
I'm sitting here looking at my copy of the Morrow Project and, um, you know, glancing at Star Frontiers box and all that sort of stuff up on the shelves. And in these conversations, like, it, it always reminds me of, uh, what a long road RPG design has been. And there's a lot of good stuff back there, even if it's a hot mess sometimes, you know, um, that, the, the type of games that we play are created by the rules and the, the rules that we use now are, are not, uh, you know, handed down from the gods and that there's completely weird ways of doing things that, uh, are, are worth playing with. So, you know, maybe specifically the old Morrow project. I know there's a new edition that probably like makes sense, but, um, uh, but really all the old RPGs. Here, here. Second, third, I guess. So um, I only have one geek thing. It's a YouTube series that I recently discovered. It is called Life in Jars with a question mark. Um, it's a, um, a guy who does um, closed system ecospheres, um, usually in like closed glass jars, like a either a mason jar or some of them are like multi-gallon size glass jars that um, he makes like aquariums or terrariums or something like that and seals them off and just kind of documents how they develop over the course of a year or two. Um, absolutely fascinating stuff. Just to see how, um, see how things survive for long periods of time in a closed system where the only thing that is coming into the system is sunlight. My wife loves life in jars. Hmm. <laughs> I'll jump in. So as usual, I try to do weird stuff because I'm into weird stuff. Um, I'm going. My geek stuff this week is a. It's a. It's a company called Speedball. Um, they make drip pens for calligraphy, and uh, I, uh, you know, in this COVID life, you know, I'm, I'm reaching out for things that uh, are give me a little bit of zen. And uh, you know, I've I've been writing a lot, just journaling and stuff, just to get through this time, and. Uh, uh, something compelled me to order some India ink and some drip pens from a speed uh, this company called Speedball, and uh, it has been uh, a great comfort. And I would highly recommend anybody who's into uh, fantasy or D and D or Lord of the Rings, or just kind of want to slow down a little bit and connect with an older time. Uh, go get yourself a drip pen. Uh, Speedball is by far the best. They make a great introductory set for 15 bucks. You can get, you know, a pen with six different, you know, uh, six different styluses. And, uh, you know, just, uh, just being able to uh, dip your pen into some ink and make some uh, interesting looking maps. There's a certain style of map making. There's a certain style of writing that you just can't get with a ballpoint pen or an, or any of the other style of pens that are common now that, uh, say, J.R.R. Tolkien used a drip pen. You know, the Constitution was written with a drip pen. It, uh, it's slow, and it's boring, and sometimes it's maddening, but it's very zen, and uh, I would highly recommend uh, getting a drip pen from Speedball. Hmm. Um... <sighs> I got one. Speaking of uh, old games, um, back on that theme, um, PlayClassic.Games. If you guys are not familiar with this website, it is a shitload of uh, 
emulators and ROMs in the website. They've got DOS games, Windows games, Genesis, NES, SNES, um, Neo Geo, like random shit and like major games that you'd heard of. It's got like all of them. I was playing Warcraft 2 earlier. They've got Doom, they got Diablo, all the NES games, but they're just free. You just go to this website and you just play it on the website in your web browser. It's amazing. So yeah, playclassic.games. Awesome, Jordan. I'll have to check that out. Um, It's fucking sweet, dude. All right, guys. Well, thank you very much for talking. I think it's time for us to stop this bullshit and start rolling some dice. Let's do it. Woo. This has been a production of Alien Familiar Media. You can find past episodes and more at alienfamiliar.com. You can email us at alienfamiliarmedia at gmail.com. This production is protected under a Creative Commons non-commercial attribution, no derivatives license. Music for this episode is Suburban Outlaw by Forget the Whale and can be found at freemusicarchive.org.